Hello and welcome to the last in the first series of the Methods Matter podcast from Dementia Researcher and the National Centre for Research Methods, the show that throws a light on different research methods, helping you to decide what suits your research design. In this series, we've been looking at five different research methods with an expert from the field and a dementia researcher that has put the method into practice. My name for the fifth and final time is Leah Fulliger. I'm a PhD student at the University of Southampton and I research dementia care and faecal incontinence. This podcast came about when I got to the research method section of my PhD write-up and realised, ah, I can't cope with this, this is too hard. So together we're going at, we're going to work out where I went wrong, learning a whole load of things I wish I'd known three years ago. Today we're picking over the bones of our data, recycling, reusing and realising that there is life in the old dog yet and exploring qualitative secondary analysis, which I've really struggled to say, so I'm going to say QSA from now on. Joining me on this quest are two truly inspirational guests. In our expert corner, we are once again joined by the fountain of knowledge that is Dr. Karin Hughes from the University of Leeds. And over in Researcher Ranch, we have the incredibly hardworking, brilliant Dr. Anna Volkner. Karin is director of the Timescapes Archive, editor-in-chief of Sociological Research Online, convener of the MA Qualitative Research Methods, and a senior fellow for the NCRM. Anna is a senior research fellow and speech and language therapist at University College London. She's particularly interested in language-led dementia and primary progressive aphasia and developing interventions to remove communication barriers. And she's a bit of a superhuman. I'm so looking forward to the show. But hi, Karen. How are you? It's great to have you back. Hi, Leah. Thank you very much for having me back. I've been really enjoying these podcasts. Looking forward to this one. Fantastic. Thank you. And for anyone who has only just discovered the Dementia Researcher podcast, Anna is a regular contributor as a host and a guest. Hi, Anna, how are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm looking forward to being on the other side. I've been hosting podcasts recently, so it's lovely to be on the other side. Does it feel a bit more relaxed? It does, actually, yeah. <laughs> so I loved your recent vlog on open access publishing, and I spotted that you're a guest editor for the special collection coming out next year on creative approaches to qualitative dementia research. Do you want to get a plug in for that? Oh, yes, please. So, um, <laughs> As you said, I'm co-guest editor on a special collection for the International Journal of Qualitative Methods on creative, creative approaches in qualitative research. And we're looking for articles, I guess, which take a creative approach to redesigning qualitative research methods and research practices so that they're more inclusive and so they kind of fit the competencies of the people involved. So people with dementia who might be involved in the studies. And we want the collection to reflect work where the voices of people living with dementia are actually present or guide the research. So the plug is abstracts are due by 31st of January. So please do submit and you can find the link on the um, Demi Quoll Twitter handle, which is at Demi Quoll. So D-E-M-D-E-M-I-Q-U-A-L. Demi Quoll. Fantastic. I hope everyone listening wrote that down because I'll probably forget it. <laughs> so what do I know? We begin each podcast with me giving a summary of what I understand about the method we're discussing, which of course today is qualitative secondary analysis. Have to pause before I say that. So this is my chance to shine because this is one I actually know something about because it does mostly what it says on the tin. I would say secondary analysis is about using existing data collected for purposes of a prior study in order to pursue um, research that is distinct from the original research. It's, it's looking for different aims and answering different questions. So it may be a new research question or an alternative perspective on the original question. I can, I'm now gonna go to Karin and see what was wrong with that definition because I'm sure there was quite a bit. There was nothing wrong with that definition. It was really, really good. Um, what I would say is that in actual fact, um, qualitative secondary analysis also includes um, extending um, existing research. So it can described as a continuous form of um, QSA and that's language used by um, Professor Sarah Irwin at the University of Leeds, but also um, by Dr. Anna Tarrant, um, who has used a form of continuous QSA um, in, in her work. 
but yeah, it's but uh, qualitative secondary analysis is it can also be of, of any sort of data, um, and um, but it's how you treat um, those data and how you render them as qualitative. That's so that's one of the tasks, if you like, of qualitative secondary analysis. So does it count as secondary analysis if halfway through your data collection, you realise that there's another question that you could answer that's related, but not your original one? So is this during your own fieldwork? Yeah, yeah. And I, I wouldn't really use the language of QSA there. I'd just say you're tacking backwards and forwards, really. Um, and that your research is actually being quite successful you're finding out new things and it's producing new questions that you are then going on to um, interrogate um, so but I think that's a really really interesting um, question in that it's asking about time frames so how far back when we, when we use the language of qualitative secondary analysis we're always sort of invoking this idea of going back and returning to um, and your question suggests that it can be very much in the moment. And I think that that's, that's right. Timeframes can be uh, 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 infinitely variable in QSA. So would that mean that the sort of the definition of QSA would be that when data collection is finished, when does it become QSA rather than just tacking backwards and forward in your, in your data collection? Or is that a loaded question? No, I, I think that that's an absolutely fascinating question. Um, and I think that that is almost where QSA was born, because in um, a previous podcast I was involved in on qualitative longitudinal research, the actual methodology of QL involves going back, you know, going back, revisiting data and thinking through the, from the vantage of the present, whenever that was or, or, or is, um, what may have changed, what continuities there are and so on and so forth, and how we ourselves and our perspectives may have changed in making sense of those data. So I think that... Um, when we were describe, when we were talking about um, QL, we were saying it's a methodology that's fundamentally attuned to questions of time, and I would say that in part, so too is QSA, um, and it is it needs to engage with questions of um, what I would describe as temporal remove. How far in time are we? What you know? What what sort of distance? Um, how far that might be a limitation. And I think that the emphasis has sometimes been too far in, in that direction, but also how we might harness the affordances of temporal remove, how, how much um, a, you know, time has passed allows us new sorts of perspective on, on ways of thinking at a given time. So um, when we're talking about continuous QSA, we're, we're talking about and contiguous research, you know, so research that's perhaps going on at exactly the same time as the original study, but and it's another researcher that may be going in and repurposing those data for new sorts of questions, or in um, <coughs> or, or repurposing those data as as evidence for a, a new type of study. So, you know, that temporal remove can be again infinitely variable. That seems to be one of the um, common answers in qualitative yeah. research is that there's infinite answers and we'll, we'll try and decide on one that fits your particular research and your particular study. Well, I, I absolutely. So there's that pragmatic element. Mm. Is like what suits me and how, how might that suit the aims and intentions of my study? But also that's one of our analytical tasks mm. then is um, how we theorise um, those data um, as a particular form of evidence, how we make a case that those data are relevant to speak to the sorts of questions that we have. And so that temporal remove is absolutely one of the dimensions that we have to engage with theoretically. And, and so, um, you know, the point is you can't just stroll into somebody else's data set and use it uncritically that doesn't that doesn't work at all and so um it's this you know it keeps coming back this infinitely variable is as if it's oh how long is a piece of string it could be anything we don't need to worry about it i don't think that's the case 
I think that it, you know, infinitely variable means, therefore, it's a job of work for us to do analytically in making sense of the value of those data for our own research and recognising how we are situating those data as a particular form of evidence that can speak to the questions that we're bringing to them. And I will just say, because this, because where you're a part of the Timescapes archive, QSA mm. must be incredibly relevant to the Timescapes archive. Is it something that's used a lot? Well, so the Timescapes, the original ESRC um, Timescapes programme had three strands. One of it, one was seven empirical studies um, that were all QL and built out of heritage studies. The second was the development of the Timescapes archive for the purposes of reuse, and it sits as a satellite archive to um, UKDA um, because it was developed um, in collaboration with them. And the third strand was the possibilities for qualitative secondary analysis, and that was led by um, Professor Sarah Irwin. And so she was absolutely instrumental in developing the language um, of, of QSA. Um, and it was a task that everybody involved in Timescapes was, in, was involved in, in one form or another. So you really are the perfect person to be talking to right now. <laughs> one of them. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, as we've said in previous podcasts, th these are collective endeavours. It's mm. not, you know, when, you know, we're not this solitary candle shining a light on a particular methodology. We're always in dialogue. We're working Always, if, if we're not working with other people's work, then we're doing something wrong. <laughs> it's not scholarly. Yeah. So on that note, Anna, let's bring this back to dementia. Can you tell us how you've used secondary analysis in your own research? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, when I was first asked to do this um, podcast, I was, my initial reaction was, yes, yes, of course. And then uh, my second reaction was, that, oh, do I actually do secondary <laughs> analysis? <laughs> But, but I was saying to Karen earlier, I think actually in my field, we do it all the time. So as an example, um, in my PhD, I did a pilot feasibility study. Um, so I, was, I developed an intervention for people with dementia. And um, part of the study was to trial it. So to look at the feasibility of delivering the intervention and we collected heaps of different outcome measures. So we... Um, asked the we, we delivered it within the NHS and we asked the local speech and language therapist to collect as one of the outcome measures video recordings of the, the people with dementia so they have this language-led dementia called primary progressive aphasia and we asked the speech therapist to record each of these people with their partner so we had couples and, and they recorded 10 minutes of their conversation four times so we had four 10-minute samples pre having the therapy or not having therapy so that was a randomized trial and 10 minutes of them having a conversation four times after having therapy so in other words we had kind of 80 minutes of video data and um, in the actual um, study uh, we collected that data from 18 participants and in the original study I um, was particularly interested in this viability of that not only the feasibility of that collecting the data within that pilot feasibility study but also kind of uh, looking at the behavior so we actually counted behaviors is it kind of a more we coded and counted the behaviors however um since the study's finished we've gone back to this video data this huge archive i mean that's a lot of video and that's eight times 10 minutes for 18 participants and um we we haven't we're not using all of it but we're looking at some of the data um, and we're using um, conversation analysis methods because what we, in this field, what we don't have heaps of information on is how conversations work. Um, mm. So there is some research data on that, but there's not heaps. So we've, this is probably one of the biggest video um, or collections of, of, of videos of conversations between people and their day-to-day their, -day partners natural conversation samples and conversation analysis is based on natural conversation samples so it was a great resource to use and um, to examine the patterns and organization of conversation between these people with these different types of primary progressive aphasia and their their day-to-day -day partners and um, does that make sense that's 
fascinating to be honest I mean that's it's it's, it's well I was going to say it's lucky but it's not lucky because you, you did the first study but it's amazing that you had this um this huge amount of video data that is quite difficult to get in you know in other studies if you didn't have that if it wasn't already sort of like your data is it quite difficult to access data to analyze for to use for QSA that's a really interesting question and I have to say within my discipline so as a speech and language researcher um, they are there are archives as Karen described and they they've been set up um, for within the within the discipline, within the profession, so to speak. So there's a number of archives um, where people submit um, audio or video data of conversation or natural interaction. There's a lot of that or even discourse. So, or, or, um, so there's lots of archives of people providing descriptions of holidays or um, descriptions of pictures, common pictures that are used in common tests or, or conversation data and it's done with it's been done with children, so more broadly across this type of speech and language research. Um, there's, there's very well known archives of child um, development data, of data of people post-stroke, um, so we call that post-stroke aphasia, post-stroke language impairment. And what where hasn't been, however, is much data collected in my field on people with dementia. Mm. So we have added the archive, we create kind of uh, we're trying to start this, well, complement the stroke archive, really, and um, because many of the speech and language researchers who've studied um, stroke aphasia or, or have also been exploring language and dementia. So we, you know, it's some of the researchers, the same people. So um, we, we're adding our archive of data to that archive. Um, but actually, I think perhaps having uh, spoken to my colleagues and supervisors and mentors, it's a culture within our discipline of sharing data. Mm. And, um, and so that's what helps. And it's a great source type of data it's, it, to share on in that way. I don't know, Karen, if whether it's so common across other disciplines to be so collaborative. That's a great question. And, and this is, I think, one of that's characterized um, QSA in the social sciences um, has been it's been quite a contested field so for example in oral history if you were in oral history it wouldn't be you know people are quite mm. used to reusing historical sources and and uh, you know the QSA of those sources um, um, it, it's obviously it's par for the course but for example in sociology there has been a long tradition of um, ethical development um, uh, uh, around how we treat research um, research participants, how we treat their data and so on and so forth and what our relationship is to them. Um, and I, I think that these have been incredibly important. You know, I think that they've informed society more generally around, you know, you know the ethical treatment of people and, and of data. However, historically, the um, concerns were very much about, for example, the systematic misrepresentation of, of of participants, if um, research is strange to those participants, or perhaps hostile even to the original aims and intentions of the uh, of the originating researchers and study, you know they may systematically misrepresent. Um, there are also um, there was quite a long period um, where people, uh, social scientists, describe participants as vulnerable, um, and that built out of I think, um, attention to the asymmetrical power relations in researcher-research relationships. And the ethical thing was historically, and for many decades, was to collect data, analyze those data, and then destroy them. Because what you did was then protect those participants. They couldn't be tracked down, they, you know, their data couldn't be misused, um, that you protect their an anonymity um, and confidentiality and so on and so forth. And that would seem to be the ethical thing to do. And, and then in around about 2004, Jennifer Mason did a scoping review. I think she was commissioned by the ESRC to do that. Um, to might have been a little bit later, but it doesn't matter, you know, a couple of years here or there. Um, 
And um, one of the things that she pointed out was that qualitative data are really expensive resources to produce. And there is also, I mean, this is something that I would add, I'm not sure if Jennifer said this, I'm sure she would have done, um, but there's this ethical attention that we need to pay to the contributions of our participants that they've you know they've given their time they've given their experiences they've really contributed um, in a, in a number of ways and we know that because there's lots of work on the emotional burden of research for both researchers and, and research participants so there was a bit of a um a, um change in um, attitudes and the ESRC invested in a couple of um, experimental or exploratory um, um, studies um, uh, uh, and groups of studies looking at the possibilities of qualitative secondary analysis and on the basis of the findings of those then it, it, it funded timescapes and that was why the third strand of that timescapes was qualitative secondary analysis you know we, if we build the archive you know will people come you know <laughs> that sort of thing you know um and uh, yes they do and um subsequently there's been a, a tremendous body of work not only within sociology but across the social sciences and, and disciplines more generally that um i think is very much associated with other broader changes such as um, datification of society um, and um, a massive drive um, to collect and analyze digital data, um, you know, big data and so and so forth, and um, the development of archives and repositories and the technologies of both storing, curating, but also making available yeah. um, large bodies of data. So there have been multiple um, developments in multiple directions that have created, I think, a more um, engaged um, uh, community um, in the social sciences um, who are beginning to recognise the value of reusing data. And one of the things that um, myself and my colleague, um, Dr. Anna Tarrant, have written about has been the development of what we describe as a ten temporal ethical sensibility. Because when we think about um, qualitative secondary analysis there's been this tendency as I said to look back but I think that also it encourages us to look forward so something that Andrew Clark talked about in the QL um, podcast but here if what we recognize is that um, particular individuals and groups in society struggle to participate digitally and struggle mm -hmm. to participate in social research that when we do capture um, some data, we do capture um, encounters and interactions with these people, that what we're facilitating is an opportunity for them to tell their story and to, and to speak um, to particular political agendas, to, to say what it is. And when we've spoken to those people, they often describe their lives as hugely constrained in terms of being able to speak to political agendas that they're often overlooked, they're unheard, or they're, they're simply not engaged and involved. Mm -hmm. So we can see them as marginalized in two ways, both in terms of having the capacity to speak to political agendas and be heard, but also marginalized digitally. They're not being captured in the digital transactional data. So they're not appearing in, in those big data. So for me, there is this responsibility to think through how we preserve those accounts for future um, researchers. And um, so that those aspects of social dynamics, social relations, social processes are part of future historical records. And um, that avoids what I would describe as a double silencing, which is not only are they marginalized and silenced um, in their everyday lives, but also when we erase their data, we subsequently erase them from their social historical record. I want to, I, that was so helpful and such a poignant description because actually it links back to the example I gave where um, when I took the project to NHS ethics, to the REC committee, they were hugely concerned about the vulnerability of people with dementia my participants, the, the advisory group, the PPI 
uh, reference group that I work with strongly felt that they that people with dementia um that the people in our study would most likely have capacity and even if they maybe were at risk of lacking capacity that it could be work that, that, that the consent process could be appropriately undertaken to determine whether that person wanted to be recorded and that that person and their family member could make the decision about whether they wanted uh, their data to be kept and we incorporated it into our consent forms in an accessible aphasia friendly way and um, they, the I, when I had to ask them whether we should incorporate it, the people in my the advisory committee, my PPI reference group, were horrified by the idea that their investment in data, with when they were living with a progressive disease, huge, you know, a disease that progresses actually quite quickly in terms of language and communication, might not have any longevity. Um, and that it might not benefit more than one researcher. They were absolutely horrified that the REC could take that decision away from them. And um, it was really fascinating. And then in the REC, they, I guess, tried to marginalize this community by inferring that they didn't either have the capacity to make that decision and that perhaps the um, consent form we developed in an accessible way, co-developed, wasn't, uh, didn't need to be co didn't need to be accessible and didn't need to be co-developed of course luckily for us they then acknowledged that that was the right process and we were able to collect this data but everything you've said resonates with that experience that me and my um team had so thank you for putting you know naming some of those things it's really helpful and i i think that that's a, an absolutely um i think it's a critically important example the thing that I would say when I'm talking about a temporal ethical sensibility, so that's Anna and I um, talking about this, is um, that if you um, properly curate data and, and store data, so as within your um, profession, Anna, that what you build in is the potential for um, um, changing ethical sensibilities and changing ethical protections. So rather than becoming very laissez-faire and saying, oh, yeah, anyone can um, use this data, anyone, you know, it's whatever. We know that qualitative data have very particular qualities, which do mean that they are very sensitive and they do require ethical management and handling. But when you archive those data, what you do is you make visible who it is that's using them. Yeah. You facilitate conversation and dialogue, for example, with the originating researchers and the researchers that are reusing those data, or if those time periods are much longer, with those that are curating those data or responsible for managing the, 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 and protecting those data, you're able to facilitate a dialogue and make visible the ethics of how those data are being reused. So one of the problems I think is that when we think about ethics, we only ever think prospectively. It's as if somehow when we do our ethics and we go through work and so on and so forth, that everyone can feel hugely confident that we've ticked all the boxes and it's going to be ethical research. And yet any qualitative researcher who has been involved in qualitative research knows that in research, there's always this uh-oh moment where something it's not right, you're going to have to bring in emergency measures. You're going to have to do this, that, and the other. And um, um, there's been a lot of writing on that emergent negotiated ethics um, in qualitative research. So we have to think about prospective ethics, but also situated ethics, ethics in the moment. And when we begin to think properly about QSA and about archiving and things like that, we can think about those retrospective ethics. We can think about those ethics that are going to be in, in the future um, by, um, in, and employed by researchers considering how they may reuse those data. So we build in the prospect and the potential for new and emergent ethics in the discipline and in the field and in the management and treatment of, of archived data and in, in particular studies. 
So there's always this other aspect as well, which is that um, when we think about the reuse of, of, of data, it all seems quite hidden away. Um, and yet what we have are people reusing data in order to write papers or to develop interventions or to write reports and so on and so forth. And when we begin to think temporarily in those ways, we can also observe the opportunities for scrutiny that are built into, mm -hmm. say, publication processes, for example, through peer review and so on and so forth. So these opportunities for dialogue and scrutiny and, 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 uh, and consideration and, and negotiation and so on and so forth are built into thinking temporarily about lifetimes of data, how those data are going to be managed in their own lifetime, as it were. I hope that is helps. I hope, you know, that that ticks a few boxes, particularly for people who are thinking of going through ethics, that that is something that they can say. If my data are going into an archive, this isn't making my participants more vulnerable. Mm. This is in actual fact avoiding a double silencing and it is building in the potential for increased ethical scrutiny and, and management. Well, that was a fantastic conversation to listen to. So what we'll do now is we'll get into some detail and provide some top tips for anyone who is new to using the method. So in this segment, I'm going to ask some quick, straightforward questions to both guests on how to put this method into practice. Karin, the first ones are for you. Why do secondary analysis? I think, again, we're going back to the historical thing. One of the things that was really clear during the um, COVID pandemic and which is still continuing it is not over um, is that the disproportionate impacts of COVID were falling on to those individuals and groups that systematically experienced disproportionate impacts so what we find is that it was very gendered it's very racialized and so on and so forth um, and one of the things about QSA what that allows us to do is to um, it, you know, bring historical analyses to bear and where historical might be only over the last five to 10 years, might be over 20 years, it may be over 100 years or whatever, but particularly in the context of, of COVID, it was, um, it was very clear um, that um, certain forms of disadvantage meant that certain individuals and groups were unable to, or were constrained in how they managed and negotiated those impacts of COVID. And rather than being in a position where we say, oh, why would that be? You know, QSA allows us to engage with, you know, um, uh, 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 not only the data, but also other writing and so, so forth. I see this as all part of the same thing, other forms of evidence um, to make sense of how and why these the impacts of COVID were disproportionate for particular individuals and groups. Does that make sense? And um, I also, I mean, this can't be quick, I'm so sorry, but <laughs> I was doing two studies at the same time. I was looking at um, midlife grandparents in um, low-income contexts at the same time as looking at um, the impacts of internet gambling on the family. And I had been doing um, all the analyses for the internet gambling study while setting up the midlife grandparents study. And once I, then that was under timescapes, the midlife grandparents study was under timescapes. And then I went back to the internet gambling data and all of these grandparents fell out of the cupboard. There were grandparents everywhere and I had not seen them. I had not seen them. I'd been so preoccupied with questions of addiction, temporal analyses of addiction and so on and so forth, which built out from previous work that I had done. That myself, my own um, perception, my own awareness of what the questions might even be and how I might bring them to sets of data changed simply because I had been involved in another study. So one of the things for me is that qualitative data can never be analytically exhausted, ever. And um, so again, I sort of, um, I'm, I'll, I'll align myself with, if I might, with Jennifer Mason, big giant in, in methodology, and I'm being cheeky here. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think that these are hugely valuable um, resources. They are expensive to produce, but also they're enormously valuable um, uh, uh, documents of, of, of life. 
I think you did very well to get five years of work into that short amount of time. So well done. Thank you. <laughs> so how do you prepare your data for secondary analysis? I understand that's probably another how long's a piece of string question. Um, well, if uh, you're presuming that those are your own data um, and often in qualitative secondary analysis, we're working in other data sets or across other data sets or potentially across different data repositories. So for me, um, there are two questions here. One is how might you prepare data for archiving or for qualitative secondary analysis? And, and that's, I, that's far too um, detailed to go into, but um, Professor Bren Neal has written a very lengthy document that is on the Timescapes archive that I would recommend any researcher go and read if you are conducting qualitative research because it tells you how to keep your keep and organize and store your, da your data. And it means that whenever you go back to your data, you know exactly where you are in your data set. It's absolutely fantastic. But um, those guidelines were developed in dialogue with UKDA. So it's gold standard data preparation advice. And then um, the second aspect is about how you might sample your data. And I think that that's, that's something very, very different. And that's, it's, it's hugely challenging. So one of the things that I think the common misconception is that QSA is easier than fieldwork um, because the data are already there and you can, you can just use them. No, no, you can't. Um, you know, there's a lot of work you have to do um, in order to, as I said, make sense of how those data are a particular form of evidence, how you might even sample, how you might even control the amount of data that's available to you. So to prepare for secondary data analysis, you need to do a hell of a lot of reading. You have to have done the same amount of work that you would do for any sort of primary field work. You have to be clear, why am I doing this research? And in primary field work, we say, well, why would I speak to those people? How can they inform on the questions that I have? And you've often, as Anna says, you've developed your questions in dialogue with those people. Mm. So in qualitative secondary analysis, that is then your challenge. You know. Um, how and why, what, what sort of data am I using and why might that be? How and why do I think that that can inform on the sorts of questions um, uh, that I'm asking? And the point that I would make is that there is more data than we can, as a human, as a species, than we can ever, ever possibly analyse. We can never exhaust those qualitative data. There's too much so your challenge is not so much finding the data as in managing and controlling the data that, that you're going to be using. Last question for you, Karen. I know we've already talked a bit about the ethical considerations of um, QSA, but are there any other particular main ethical issues with, with QSA? Um, there are, and they're very complicated. So for example, there is the one around anonymization, and this is when we're thinking about preparing our data. Um, um, Neve Moore has said she's written about this. Um, Neve Moore has written some seminal papers on qualitative secondary analysis, by the way, um, in a special issue that was headed up by Jennifer Mason in 2007 in Sociological Research Online. But Neve has written about um, uh, anonymization. One of the things that she says is that um, if you anonymize, you, you strip meaning out of the data. And um, so I think researchers have then who are reusing data have those challenges around how we might anonymize um, data and yet keep them meaningful. But I think that that's, again, this is retrospective ethics. I think that's easily manageable. You know, you just use the same techniques as you would. Um, there's the one around um, systematic misrepresentation. How do we, how do we know? How, how is our interpretation of these data one that can be sustained? And I think that that's not only an intellectual, well, I think all intellectual endeavours are ethical, but that is where we may foreground particular sorts of ethical questions there. Hmm. There's another one which is really um, unusual, which is the professional discreditation of others. It's very easy for people to walk into a data set and have a look at how somebody else has conducted an interview and, and think that they've done bad you know, that's, that's a bad interview, or the, the language that has been used at a given historical moment um, becomes quite pejorative and um, um, a, a problematic, say, at a 10 years distance or a 20 years distance, certainly how we might um, speak about um, um, uh, ethnicity, race, gender, 
class, all of these sorts of things. Uh, every, you know, we, this is a constantly changing field. So there is a responsibility to the originating researchers. So the confidentiality and anonymity is quite hard when you're citing a data set mm. and naming the people who have conducted the research and your treatment of, of those researchers um, in, in, in that data set. So there, there are those sorts of quite unusual ethical um, concerns that you may have that are very um, particular um, to, um, um, to um, qualitative secondary analysis. Um, and then finally, there's the question of consent, that the that consent is something Brent Neal talks about the shift from um, informed consent to enduring consent. And this might be helpful for all researchers who are thinking about gathering research data um, that they are then going to archive. So um, the con enduring consent is where you assure people that your data are going to be treated ethically. Um, and even though they're going to be used by other people, that, that those data are going to be treated ethically. So those are quite distinctive ethical um, aspects of QSA. And Anna, your turn. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm going to try and stay short and sharp. <laughs> I'm going to talk and talk. I know I am. <laughs> so how do you handle missing data? So I think um, my example is perhaps a little bit biased because um, it, it was my own data. So in, within our study, we were just we were able to go back to the source if we thought there was some data missing, go back to the original um, documents and the original data sets and even some of the hard copies because they were there that we had have had to store um, within the constraints of our ethics. Um, so we did have that privilege. And the other privilege we had as well, I mentioned in the original project, we um, collected eight recordings from every single participant. So the absolute wealth of data there. Um, so in uh, CA method, so conversation analysis, um, you that you might only select a small proportion of a conversation to analyze. And what we've got is a plethora of information from every participant. So if one video was um, somehow compromised or was missing, or we've, you know, we've had examples, not within our study, no, within our study where one of the video, a couple of the video recordings um, were made because the video recordings in our study were made by the person in their own home mm. actually we gave them equipment and they video recorded themselves and of course then you know people video record the table instead of themselves they <laughs> video record the ceiling they <laughs> the dogs come in the you know actually don't get any audio so we we could make we could you know make up for that um by taking a, an alternative sample but i have had um, we have had uh, started working with somebody outside of our own research group who's thinking, who's starting to look at our data. And actually, similarly, what they do is they come back to us with any questions. But that's, you know, I, I believe in our in speech and language research, it's quite a small community, but they always come back to us, nevertheless, as the, I guess the um, the. I was thinking of it as almost, I was think, talking to my mentor about our data and we were talking about us being kind of the guardians of the mm. data. Um, so they were coming back to us as the guardians of the data, I guess. Um, how do you overcome biases in the original data collection? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And I was, when I was looking through the script for today and some of the questions I was thinking about how I was gonna answer you. <laughs> Because um, our data, I mentioned just now, is filmed in the person's home by the people themselves. And um, so the idea is to reduce bias in our data set because it's natural conversation samples. So then with the natural conversation sample um, for conversation analysis, that, that's the aim. You reduce the bias. So you take a longer sample. And we were going to do, we were doing that anyway. We were taking really long samples. So in, in conversation analysis, you try and make it as natural as possible. And you often use the last five minutes of the data set because you've audio or video recorded somebody. It's kind of commonly understood within that field that the um, last five, so if you take a 10 or 15 minute sample, the last five minutes are the more natural 
we we happen to be doing that anyway but there are other biases for example when you are recording somebody or in any way audio or or um you know video recording that people um create a bias where they uh, perform for the video or there's the, the the kind of performance bias if you will and so again we try to record multiple samples um but the other thing um we were talking about recently i think it's the hawthorne effect um so this is the idea that um if somebody is observed they will perform differently Okay, and that's based on some research. I was talking about it yesterday with a colleague, and it's based on the idea that um, a piece of research that I think was done in a car factory, and they were saying that um, that if they watched the workers, they performed better just because they were watched. But actually, there's been some recent uh, critique of that work that suggested that's not actually the case. And so I think when we're talking about that kind of bias, you know, how you are video recorded or whether you change your behavior for audio video record. Yeah, sure, you, you may, there may be some change, but actually there's also a, it, perhaps the degree of change isn't what we think it is. And I, Karen's gonna add to that. Um, but we, I think Karen add to that in a minute, but I guess the key thing to say here is that I think that even when you are recording someone, you're recording their conversation style, their conversational, um, you know, we all have a variety of conversation styles. As a clinician, a therapist, I'm constantly talking to people about that. I'm not gonna therapize you in one way to talk in one way and that we have multiple identities. So no matter when we're video or audio recording, I believe that we are um, recording an aspect of a person. And I think by recording people without the um, researcher present, we that's been quite a helpful way of reducing the bias. I've worked with data sets where they've had the researcher present in the data set. And that's often more difficult to manage. Mm. I've found much more difficult. I would just come in music to my ears. And I, I absolutely agree with you. I, you know, this is a form of performance, but I'm saying what I think I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm trying to communicate. Um, to you um, in the clearest way that I can, what my thoughts are, for example, about QSA, you know, and it's a very particular and focused sort of conversation and dialogue. And it will be if I went to my GP or it would be if I spoke to the person at the Tesco's checkout. Um, there's always some aspect, performative aspect of what it is that we do with, with and for other people in our families and so and so forth. Um, so, and, and these are multiple, they, they are in, you know, there's just so many and they're, you know, um, and I absolutely agree with you that, that that does not then detract from what it is, the efforts that those people are trying to make. They're trying to talk. There's, they're trying to explain something perhaps to each other. And however performative it is in, in, in one sense or another, there is always going to be that, for me, um, that element. So it, there is no, uh, you know, this is a human communication. We, we do mediate and navigate how we might speak to one person as as, as opposed to, to another. So for me, that value is not taken away simply because, oh, well, now we're going to talk because we're on the film and what we're going to talk about is, oh, let's, let's talk about this a little bit chatty. It's, that, that tells us loads. It takes, tells us oodles. So, um, and I, I, I don't think that it attracts. So this idea of bias is like, it's less a bias and more a case of orientation. You know, mm. how are people focused in these particular ways? How might that change over the course of those eight videos? You know, how does it change from the first five minutes to the last five minutes and so and so forth? But what are the consistencies in terms of the uh, uh, aphasia that we're, we're able to observe, even when people are trying quite hard to speak to camera and so and so forth? And when I, even when there's a researcher involved, I've, we, I've been using another date, somebody else's data set actually for <laughs> secondary analysis and, and we're doing, we're doing a mixed research on the, in our secondary analysis. But it's got the um, the the person collecting the data in, so they're asking them to recount a holiday. And what's really interesting is in some of these samples, the researchers saying, mm, "Yeah, aha, right, aha, and oh, right, yeah." And in others, the researcher is them, and one might suggest that that's biasing the sample. Mm. Um, but actually, um, one might also reflect on the fact that 
the researcher is using minimal turns to support the person's communication because they already have a communication difficulty to demonstrate the competence of the person to get the more or better sample or bigger sample. And um, we might actually say that what the researcher is doing is part of the person's uh, communication as well. It, it's it's really interesting, but um, it, it's really and really fascinating. And perhaps, you know, even pre communication disorder, pre-dementia diagnosis, people have different styles of conversation. Anyway, you know, and I know that one, we have friends who are very quiet and we have friends who are very chatty and we have different strategies to get the same information out of them. <laughs> I, I would jump in here and say that what people can't see is that we're all nodding at each other. No. So, there, it, I mean, verbal cues to for people is absolutely part of everyday life. We say, uh-huh, yeah, oh, yeah. Or we say, uh-huh. Um, yeah. 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 You know, we, we, we use verbal cues. It's part of how we communicate. And, and we use nonverbal ones as well, which is what we've all been doing here. And, and therefore, it's part of that dynamic and observable in that way. It can be treated as a form, uh, uh, um, a form of data that can inform on the type of dynamic that was and wasn't possible in those conversations with those people. And uh, yeah. So uh, the final question I'll ask you is, will this method save you time? So my experience is it took longer up front to, as the, um, when I was planning to keep my data for long, like invest in that idea of other people and myself being able to do qualitative secondary analysis. But I found for my own, analysis it's uh it i i have found it's quick it feels quicker on the back leg even though i've had to do planning i haven't it's felt quicker because um i think because i haven't had to jump through some other hoops that i found quite difficult to jump through in the first place so i think it was i would call it an investment up front for a long-term gain thank you very much So it's time for a recap. There's a hell of a lot to recap. <laughs> We've spoken about so much. Um, healthcare research requires significant time and resources and the, the wealth of data and information in qualitative research is just so worth revisiting and going over and over and over because we can never analyse it all. We can never fully get to grips with all of that data that exists in the world so everyone who's listened to this needs to go out and do some qualitative secondary analysis and one day I will say it correctly so it's time for the final part of the show where we discuss the pitfalls so we can help you jump over them Anna can you tell us if you came across any challenges in your research and what you might do differently if you were to do it again Karen actually touched on one, which is data storage and transfer. I think what the thing I hadn't thought about, I thought about data storage, but I hadn't thought about the devices and qualitative research. Uh, um, you often generate large data sets. And I was, I was collecting videos and audio recordings, which are huge. And so I um, would say you need to think not only about how you're going to store it, but what on um, and, and making sure you've got plentiful, you know, tech basically mm -hmm. hard drives <laughs> that um are able to, to 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 um cope with that a big filing cabinet full of massive hard drives full of data karen can you think of any other common pitfalls of qsa and how to avoid them a lot of what we've been talking about has been um what um anna and i would talk about um depth to breadth qualitative secondary analysis which is working with small qualitative samples and building up and building to bigger sorts of analyses. Um, there is um, some other work that was led by um, Ros Edwards and Lynn Jamieson, Susie Weller and Emma Davidson, um, funded through the NCRM, and they developed methods of big qual, which is where you can um, run um, software programs, for example, like Leximance or so forth on amalgamated qualitative data and identify new themes and, 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 and so forth. Um, but even where you are using um, software or whatever, qualitative data are hugely time consuming to analyze. So at some point, 
Um, I can remember when they first reorganised the Timescapes archive, we had a sand, I had a sandpit with the library team who had done all the tech work and everything and reorganised how, how we might browse and search in the archive and things like this. It was super, super excited. And I tried to dive into the data. And basically, you know, what you do is you open you open up an interview, for example, or something else. And you need to make sense of it. You know, you need to understand where this interview might sit in the context of a broader data set, who this person is, you know, what the purposes of the original um, research were, where, you know, how old are they? Well, what was their geographical and so on and so forth. So there were those sorts of things about contextualizing or recontextualizing. Um, um, the data, which is hugely time consuming. That means you have to do a lot of reading around those data. You need to understand um, what they are and where they're from and so on and so forth. And reading a transcript and analysing a transcript is just as long and arduous doing QSA as it would be um, in, in any sort of primary fieldwork. So that's, that's one of the sort of potential challenges. I've already mentioned um, another, which is sampling, which, which is an um, an associated one. And then finally, there's something which is that however rich the data are, they may not be able to inform on your question or they may have limitations. So Anna and I um, looked to see if we could build intergenerational samples by bringing two data sets together that had been conducted with people in similar socioeconomic circumstances in the same geographical locality. So could we build a longitudinal sample of people that some of these people might be a sort of parent, you know, data proxy, if you like, a qualitative data proxy parent for, for um, the, the younger people in, in, in another study. And we couldn't, we, we, we couldn't, we needed more data in order to make, um, build, the, build those samples. So qualitative secondary, we could build intergenerational samples, that was absolutely um, perfectly feasible, but not intergenerational ones. So th the data themselves may have limitations in terms of how they can inform on the questions that you have you may have to do new research does everyone feel prepared because i can i think i do and i can just hear the hundreds of phd students out there imagining how much more they can make from their phd data myself included if only they had the funding and the time um, actually that's a good time to remind everyone that dementia researcher publishes all the dementia research funding calls so it's a good idea to head over to their website and take a quick look to see if there's anything that fits your work Lastly, we come to the part of the show where we invite our eminent expert to have one minute to tell our listeners what they should go away and read to further their knowledge on this method. Karin, over to you. I'll start the timer. Well, um, uh, Jennifer Mason's special issue, 2007 in Sociological Research Online. I think that that's a really great place to start. For anyone, go and have a look. That It was a real field changer. Um, on the Timescapes archive, there are a number of papers and working papers and guides and so on and so forth that were produced by um, Sarah Irwin and Mandy Winterton on QSA, uh, based on the work that they did in um, uh, 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 during the Timescapes programme. Absolutely fantastic, really accessible, and also with some references to um, uh, uh, other papers, journal papers that they also produced. And... Um, Slightly embarrassing. A quick plug for my own work with um, Dr. Anna Tarrant. We've, you know, we've written the first textbook on, well, not textbook, it's a, you know, the handbook on qualitative secondary analysis. Um, and um, we have also written a large number of papers, blogs and, and various other things on, on, on QSA. So I, I'm a little bit squirmy um, <laughs> saying that. I don't know why, but I am. It's, it feels, yeah, just go and, go and have a read. You looked incredibly uncomfortable for the last <laughs> I really bit. Was. <laughs> I really was. It's, I, I don't know what it is, but it's like, ooh. <laughs> well, thank you, Cara. That's, that's fantastic and a lot more to add to my reading list. And thank you both so much for finding the time today to, to join us. Uh, so I'm afraid that brings us to the end of the series. I'm going to go cry now. These shows have been released each day, but they were actually recorded over several weeks. And it's been a, a fascinating journey that I really wish I'd done at the beginning of my PhD rather than at the end. 
Alongside the podcast, we're delighted to be sharing some awesome posters and visual guides produced by the brilliant artist Jack Brogham. So if you didn't have time to take notes today, don't worry, we have a great poster that shares all the highlights and everything you need to know. Take a look in the text below to download a copy or the whole series from the week, print them and pop them on your wall. Thank you all so much for listening to this week and thank you to the National Centre for Research Methods for all their support. The NCRM delivers fantastic methodological training and resources on core and advanced qualitative, quantitative, digital, creative, visual, mixed and multi-model methods. That was a hell of a thing to say. So take a look at their website at ncrm.ac.uk for more information. If you'd like to know more about qualitative secondary analysis, today's guests or any of the methods discussed this week, be sure to visit the Dementia Researcher website at dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk. And remember, if you found this useful and learned some stuff, then please share this podcast with your friends or leave a review online. Make sure to just subscribe to Dementia Research Podcast in your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode. But all that's left for me is to say a huge thank you to all of our guests, particularly today's. We've had the wonderful, talented Dr. Anna Volkmer sharing her experiences and in the expert corner, the incredible Dr. Karen Hughes. Thank you both. It's been a pleasure. It really has. Thank you. <laughs>